Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Oddity Pottity Podcast. I'm your host, Tana, and today I want to tell you about a place that's near and dear to my spooky little heart, a place with a terrifying history that has witnessed so many paranormal events that it's now infamously known as America's Most Haunted, the 1886 Crescent Hotel. The 1886 Crescent Hotel is a 135-year-old, five-story, 72-room behemoth that sits like a crown jewel atop of an Ozark mountain peak overlooking the tiny town of Eureka Springs, Arkansas. Eureka, whose population is just a hair under 2,000 people, is one of my favorite places to visit. It's very eclectic, very spooky and otherworldly, and it seems like they're always celebrating something. In fact, they host over 5,000 weddings per year, and I even got married there one time on the grounds of the Crescent Hotel. On that one particular day, or that one particular weekend, they had a biker rally, a pride festival, and a zombie crawl. Like I said, they're always celebrating something, and sometimes a bunch of things at once. Before we get into the hauntings that put this little town on the map, let me give you a brief history on how this massive hotel came to be the centerpiece of Eureka and the colorful history that led to it becoming so full of spirits. Arkansas is filled with mountains and natural springs, which are basically holes in the ground that freshwater shoots out of, sometimes feeding rivers and other bodies of water and sometimes just shooting right out of the ground. It's really cool. And there are lots of towns in Arkansas that are named after the springs. Heber Springs, Salem Springs, Hot Springs, which is another town that we're going to cover. I actually grew up in a town called Ravenden Springs, which is in the foothills or the base of this Ozark Mountain that leads up to Eureka. And I got called Hill Girl by the city kids when I went off to college, which was fine with me because they're all scared that I might skin their hides and waterproof my canoe with their their flesh. So they treated me with respect. But anyway, moving on to Eureka. Prior to the 1800s, when Arkansas was occupied by Native American tribes, the water from these springs were believed to have healing powers. In 1854, Dr. Alva Jackson traveled to the Ozark Mountains to visit Basin Spring. Now, Basin Spring was not a town. It was just a known spring that came out of the ground. But he visited this spring in hopes that the water would heal his son's eye injury. And it worked. So soon he was treating Civil War soldiers from both factions, Union and Confederate, with these magic waters as they fought at the Battle of Pea Ridge, which was taking place really close in that area. After the war ended, Judge Levi Saunders visited Dr. Jackson. He had this nasty, nasty leg sore that would not heal. And Dr. Jackson was able to heal this wound in a couple of months with the magic spring water. Judge Saunders sang the praises of the spring water and people began to flock to this little spring. And in 1879, the town was officially named Eureka Springs. In the 1800s and the early 1900s, America was experiencing this kind of spa craze and luxury hotels that offered wellness treatments that included drinking, bathing, and sometimes suffering through what must have been extremely painful colonics with that spring water 
were believed to treat a plethora of ailments. So wealthy investors took note of the attention Eureka was getting for these healing waters. And then capitalism stepped in and took hold. Construction of the Crescent Hotel, situated at the topmost point of the mountain, looming over the city of Eureka, began. My daughter Hallie and I have walked up that mountain several times, and it is so steep that at times you can almost touch your nose on the pavement as you walk up. It's almost like climbing a mountain. And forget about driving up it in the winter. It's terrifying. And watch out if you're attempting to walk up or down that hill while drinking, because I can tell you from experience, that's pretty terrifying, too. And I can't imagine how contractors in the 1800s got all their supplies up that mountain. But I imagine um, some horses and mule teams were definitely lost over that mountain's edge. But finally, on May 20th, 1886, the Crescent was ready for her grand opening. The Eureka Springs Time Echo blasted this headline. America's newest and most luxurious hotel built at a cost of $294,000. That sounds about like the average cost of a single family home nowadays, but that amount in 1886 would be around $9 million today. So it was a big deal. This was the first incarnation of the Crescent, a luxury destination for the rich and famous. On its inaugural night, a gala ball was thrown in the grand ballroom, which is now called the Crystal Dining Room. 400 of America's most elite attended this, including a guest of honor and speaker, James G. Blaine who was the Republican presidential nominee. Mr. Blaine went on to be narrowly defeated in this election by the Democratic nominee, Grover Cleveland. So it was a really big deal. And hundreds of rich people came from all over to stay at what was marketed as America's most luxurious. Now, this is a time when classism was a real thing. And there had to be some darkness and drama that went down in the Crescent during those early hotel years. Think about like the Shining and the Titanic all rolled into one. That's what I think about when I think about this era of the Crescent. Case in point, there was one particular event that was conveniently omitted from this glossy newspaper announcement. Someone had been killed during the hotel's construction. A young man named Michael, who was an Irish stonemason, who'd come over from the motherland for the sole purpose of building the Crescent. He'd fallen to his death in the area that would eventually become Room 218. Thus, the Crescent gained its first and most famous hotel ghost to date, Michael. There are multiple reports of encounters with Michael, and I can personally attest to one, which I'll tell you about later. But you can even book room 218, which is known as Michael's room. And again, I can personally attest that you might experience this young ghost present anywhere on the second floor of the Crescent. Besides Michael, I couldn't find an official number of how many people died during the Crescent during the 22 years that it functioned as a luxury hotel. But it being the golden age of tuberculosis, scarlet fever, diphtheria, and other glamorous diseases, I imagine there are a few. Heck, my cousin owned an eight-room motel and people routinely died there. So I'm guessing that more than a few souls left their bods behind in the Crescent. Hotels are a magnet for suicides and quote-unquote unnatural deaths. But for the purposes of this podcast, I really tried to dig deep and find like verified deaths. And so there was there was Michael and then there was also a death that was reported shortly after the opening of the hotel. And I don't have a name for this child, but it it did happen. And the way this child died will become more and more familiar as this story goes on. It was a five year old girl and she stumbled on the staircase on the fourth floor and fell all the way four floors down into the basement to her death. So we've got Michael who died during the construction. 
We have this poor little five-year-old who probably came there on vacation with their family and fell from the fourth floor all the way down the staircase to the basement and died. Now, I've been on that staircase, both sober and drunk, on numerous occasions, and it is dangerous either way. I'll be much more careful on it after researching it for this podcast. But much like present day, there was apparently a limited number of ultra-wealthy people in the U.S. who wanted to spend their vacation dollars in the Ozark Mountains. And so after two decades in business, the hotel became financially destitute and fell into disrepair. So now we have a creepy, rotting old mansion in the hills that no one can afford to live in. But rich people to the rescue again. In 1908, the hotel entered its second incarnation as the Crescent College and Conservatory for Women. And for the next 26 years, women from well-to-do families were sent to the college to get learned in a time where female education was a devil. So, during this time, the hotel continued to collect ghosts. Again, while the specific records of the deaths of the women who boarded there are pretty sparse, I'm told there were many tuberculosis and pneumonia deaths, especially in the winter months when some of the girls boarded throughout the holidays and staff was short and illness was rampant. There was an on-site doctor, but again, I don't have any records of whether he stayed or not and, you know, the people that he treated there. But there were two deaths that left behind souls that still haunt the Crescent today from the college years. One was the college dean's young son who died of an undisclosed illness on the property. Guests and employees alike have reported hearing the sound of a ball bouncing against the hallway walls, which was a favorite pastime of this boy in life. And I was talking to my daughter about this yesterday, and I was telling her, you know, about this particular thing. And she went, Mom, we stayed there one time, and she stayed in a room with my aunt and uncle. And she said they were kept up all night long by the sound of a ball bouncing against the wall. They called the front desk, and the front desk came up. There was no one in the hall. Even as they heard the ball bouncing against the wall, she said it literally kept them up all night, and they were exhausted the next day. So that was really like, I told her about the Dean's son ghost, and she was like, oh, my God, that was the ghost. So that was the first, the Dean's son who died. The second death occurred when a student became pregnant, and she either fell or was pushed to her death from the fourth floor balcony again. So reports differ on whether she was jumped or pushed. And there was some reports have this little backstory of some sort of like love triangle concerning the student and another student and and the boy that she was in love with or got pregnant by. But there's no verified reports. But what is verified is... People have seen this ghost on multiple times. You can hear her screams. They've heard her screams. They've looked up the stairwell and seen her looking down at them or seen her fall down the stairs, which is really creepy. That fourth floor, I'm telling you, it's dangerous. But if you ask me, the thought of being a college-age girl locked inside a haunted hotel with a hundred other dramatic college-age girls is probably the scariest part of the Crescent Saga. As the Great Depression started to ravage the country, the Crescent once again became abandoned and lay dormant with its ghosts until it entered its darkest incarnation, which is collectively known as the Baker Years. And we're not talking about delicious pastries, unfortunately. No, the Crescent was not turned into a Crescent Roll factory. Way worse than that. In 1937, an utterly disgusting man named Norman G. Baker bought the Crescent. Baker was a vaudeville actor, an inventor, a radio DJ, and a multimillionaire who made his multimillions through various cons. What he was not, in any way, shape, or form, 
was a doctor. Nonetheless, he acquired the Crescent and renamed it Baker's Cancer Curable Hospital. That is right, my dudes. This man took to the airwaves of his own radio station and announced that he could cure cancer with a special formula he created. You know, with all that medical knowledge that he did not have. Turned out that his cure was nothing more than a concoction made of corn silk, ground watermelon seeds, red clover, peppermint, glycerin, water, and carbolic acid. He would inject this goo into the tumors of his patients up to nine times per day. Can you imagine how excruciating those injections were? On top of the cancer pain itself, not to mention the probable infections and additional complications that those injections themselves caused. Oh, and and I didn't mention that Dr. Baker did not believe, I'm using snarky air quotes, Dr. Baker did not believe in prescribing pain medication for his cancer patients. This was probably because he was not licensed to prescribe it. But it also might have had a little to do with the fact that he was a complete psychopath. Despite his lack of credentials, he managed to go on and treat thousands with his cure and raked in around half a million dollars a year, probably more like $20 million today. I mean, if the fact that this guy was already a multimillionaire during the Great Depression and literally swindled millions out of desperate cancer patients during the most financially destitute era in the American history clue you in to what kind of sheer evil we're talking about? How about the fact that this guy who had zero medical training did excruciating surgical experiments and tumor removals on desperate patients, knowing full well that he was removing and treating nothing and without pain control. He even went so far as to keep specimens in jars full of alcohol and use them as proof of his surgical skills and advertisements. Bookmark that. It comes into play later. It's estimated in the few short years that Dr. Baker, Dr. Baker ran this cancer center, thousands of patients were treated with his fake methods, and scores of them died. Scores of sick, tortured, pain-riddled souls who died at the hands of the sadists behind the walls of the Crescent. He even had a morgue, in which he autopsied patients. So when the patients died because he was injecting them with this crap and they died very excruciating, painful deaths, he then autopsied them. And for what purpose, I'm not sure, because as I said before, he had no medical training and could learn nothing from cutting open corpses, you know, the corpses of his victims. He's just a, a sick, evil man. He was finally stopped in early 1940 when he was found guilty of, wait for it, Mail fraud. Yep, not for torturing and killing vulnerable cancer patients, but for having the audacity to abuse the U.S. Postal Service. Specifically, he was sending out the mailers with the pictures of these glass jars full of tissues and making false claims about them. That's what he got busted for. A little more on those glass jars, which were really the undoing of Dr. Baker. On February 5th of 2019, while breaking ground to expand the hotel's parking lot, Excavators unearthed more than 500 glass jars, many of which still contain tissues and fluids. These were the very glass jars that the con man used in his fake advertisements. Samples of the tissues and fluid were sent for forensic analysis, but there's no update on that um, because current crime cases come first and 2020 through 2021 was hella busy, you know, for, you know, coronavirus. 
The most intact of the jars are now on display in the morgue, which is located in the basement of the hotel, along with some other the hospital artifacts, such as Baker's autopsy table and a walk-in cooler where he kept cadavers and other body parts. For obvious reasons, it's believed that Baker is responsible for the majority of the ghosts that haunt the Crescent Hotel. Ghosts have claimed to have seen Dr. Baker himself with his wavy white hair and wearing his signature color, purple, purple shirts, suits, and ties. You can even stay in the suite that was his study. No, thank you. And his six-sided desk is parked in the lobby. As soon as you walk in, you see it. On one episode of Ghost, Ghost Hunters, and I've, I put the link in the notes, on this particular episode of Ghost Hunters, an infrared camera shows a clear outline of what startlingly looks like a shadowy silhouette of Dr. Baker on the morgue wall. Now, when I first saw this, I was like honed in on the heat. There's like a heat map thing on it. And I was like, what is that? And then when my eyes adjusted to it, I was like, holy crap, that looks exactly like the profile of Norman Baker. So you got to go look it up. Another famous Baker era ghost is that of a woman named Theodora. Theodora was a cancer patient who also happened to be a nurse. So she turned, she was a patient turned hospital assistant. And she's most often seen in and around room 419, which is now known as Theodora's room for this reason. She's often seen standing outside of the room while fumbling with a set of keys. In the early morning, you might hear the loud squeaking of wheels of a gurney and perhaps a glimpse of the nurse pushing a corpse down the hallway just before it vanishes. Conversations between Theodora and former patients have been heard and caught on tape during paranormal investigations. There have also been multiple accounts of people seeing children huddled under the morgue autopsy table pleading for help because cancer isn't just for adults and some of Baker's victims were sadly children. But man, there's nothing more scary than a child ghost. In the years since Baker was sent to prison, the Crescent partially burned down, was rebuilt and used for various different purposes and then eventually purchased in 1997 by Marty and Elise Rennick. The couple poured millions into the hotel, and once again, people started to travel from all over to visit the Crescent, but now not for a luxury stay, but for the chance to encounter the otherworldly spirits trapped inside. And in the 20 years under the Rennick's ownership, the Crescent still managed to take another life. On June 11, 2017, a 62-year-old tourist from Webb City, Missouri named William Thomas fell to his death from the fourth-story staircase. The incident was determined to be an accident, and in an article posted on 5 News Online, Eureka, Spring, Eureka Springs Police Chief Thomas Akert is quoted as simply saying, the man walked out of the bar and fell over the railing at the top of the staircase. Now again, I've been in that bar and on that staircase on multiple occasions, and the railing on it to me comes up to about to my rib cage. I'm kind of short. But it still comes up to the rib cage, or, you know, on a normal man, maybe around waist high. And I feel like it would take a lot of effort to fall over it, but apparently not, because so many people seem to have fallen over that railing. It's just really weird and also really sad. In addition to the ghosts of Michael, various children, the students, Theodora, Dr. Baker, and his countless victims, other ghost sightings include these. Guests have witnessed hands coming out of the bathroom mirror, cries of a man falling in the ceiling, 
doors opening and slamming shut and unable to be opened again, books flying off the shelves for no reason, and the sound of furniture being dragged across the floors in the middle of the night. In the Crystal Dining Room, many employees have encountered playful spirits dressed in Victorian clothing. And on one particular Christmas, they had a giant Christmas tree erected in the Crystal Dining Room and presents were placed under it as decoration. One night after the dining room closed, you know, everything was locked up. And the next morning when the employees came in to prepare for breakfast, all of the packages had been moved to the opposite side of the room along with the tree. And all of the chairs in the room had been placed in a circle facing the tree as if a group of people had gathered around to admire it. It's creepy. Again, in the crystal dining room, there's a large mirror between the doors that lead from the dining room to the kitchen. One time there was a waitress who I've seen this before, like it's kind of an area where they they uh, ring up your your ticket and you pay and there's a mirror behind it. There was a waitress working there and she glanced up in that mirror and she saw a man and a woman in Victorian garb facing each other like they were in a wedding. And this couple were facing each other, and all of a sudden, the groom turned and made eye contact with the waitress, and then the couple faded away. I heard that that waitress quit shortly after that. And you know what? I don't think I blame her. (laughs) I might have done that, too. That's really scary. Another commonly reported ghost is that of a man in Victorian clothing sitting at a table near the windows in the Crystal Dining Room, and he says, I saw the most beautiful woman here last night, and I'm waiting for her to return. That's especially creepy because my favorite place to eat in the Crystal Dining Room is near the windows. It's so beautiful there. And oh, by the way, they have the best breakfast in Eureka. So I know I'm telling a lot of scary stories about the Crystal Dining Room, but I still think you should go there and eat. Food is great. So multiple employees have reported seeing apparitions in full Victorian ball gowns dancing around the Crystal Dining Room during the wee hours of the morning in the room while the room was closed and dark. Like they just walked by and and they could see Victorian people dancing in that crystal dining room. Scary as heck. Steve Garrison, who was a cook at the hotel, reported that one morning while he was prepping the kitchen, he saw a boy who wore glasses and old-fashioned clothing and knickers skipping around the kitchen. <laughs> Kid ghost. <laughs> one tourist who was on uh, one of the ghost tours She reported smelling a really strong scent of cherry pipe tobacco when she got up to the second floor. And then a few years later, this same woman became employed as a tour guide at the Crescent. And while she was doing her training, she learned that Dr. John Fremont Ellis, who again was the hotel's on-site physician in the 1900s, he had an office space in what is now room 212. He was also known for his love of smoking cherry tobacco. During another tour, on this tour, guests uh, you know when you do these tours you're like kind of like in a line down a hallway so these tourists were standing in this line you know listening to the tour guide and all of a sudden several of them reported seeing a blurry figure of a man that raced past them and the lady that was at the end of the line heard him say where's my treatment another story is about two guests that reported when they exited the elevator and entered the second floor they saw a man wearing an all-black Victorian-style outfit. This man offered to help them find their room, and the guests agreed, thinking that he was a hotel employee. After leading them to room 221, he unlocked it and pushed the door open for them. 
The couple entered the room, and the man kind of lingered outside, reportedly like smiling as he tipped his head from side to side. The couple kind of looked at each other and realized like the man might be waiting for a tip. So one of them dug around in her purse, and she pulled out some money and turned around to tip him, and he was gone. So later when they went downstairs for supper, they t- they asked about him at the front desk. They were hoping to leave a tip for him because they were feeling bad. And they learned that there was no such person employed there. So I have, I'm going to add links um, to the articles that go over all of these encounters um, in the show notes. Because there are multiple sources and multiple reports of these. These are stories that I heard on the tours and then I also read about online. So these are kind of um, just a mishmash of, of everything. They didn't all come from one source, but it's going to be really interesting for you guys to look at those links and then some of the pictures that are attached to them. And I want to give credit to the people who actually experienced these stories and reported them. But I actually have a few stories myself because I've been to the Crescent many times and I've got some experiences that I can share as well. On Halloween of 2011, I attended a wedding at the Crescent, and the actual um, reception was in the Crystal Dining Hall, which is really beautiful. And I really tried hard, but I didn't see any ghosts. But we did spend a lot of time in the bar on the fourth floor, and a member of our wedding party was taking pictures up there. And in one photo, the, the next day after you know we got into the bar, she was showing everybody these photos, and it was the creepiest thing. It was a photo of a, a a pair of legs standing in front of the bar. So it was like somebody was standing, you know, leaning on the bar and the legs appeared to be wearing knickers, knee socks and pointy toe shoes, which were the typical fashion for young men in the late 1800s. But it was only the legs, guys. It was only the legs to and everything from the waist up was gone. It was just not there. It was so scary. But on that same night as well, my aunt who came with us and she was going to take pictures of the wedding. So she had a camera with lots of batteries. As she was snapping photos on that famous staircase on the fourth floor, her battery life suddenly drained from 100% to 0%. But she came prepared. So she put a new set of batteries in the camera. And after just a few shots, the new batteries suddenly were sapped down from 100% to zero as well. And we later found out that battery sapping is a very common cur- occurrence at the Crescent. Another fun story. This is not my story. It was uh, my former boss. He attended a medical convention at the Crescent. One of the physicians in attendance had come without her husband. He was also a physician, but he was on call. So he was going to come early in the morning to join everybody. However, she woke in the middle of the night when she felt him slide into the bed next to her. So after several minutes, her heart began to pound inexplicably. She just started having kind of a panic attack, and she realized that she was wide awake and there was no chance of her falling back asleep. So she reached behind her, kind of feeling around for her husband and hoping that he would wrap his arm around her to comfort her. But her fingers just grasped empty air because there was no one there. So she was like, Will, started calling out his name, Will, and he didn't answer. So she quickly jumped up and she turned on the bedside light and the mattress beside her was dented in with the impression of an adult sized body, but there was no one there. So she packed her crap up and just fled in the middle of the night. And she called my boss the next morning and said she checked into a motel and she was never setting foot in the Crescent again. And my boss didn't either. He was so scared. He was like, I'll never go back. So another thing that happened was in February of 2020, right before the pandemic hit, 
I went on a girl's trip to Eureka with my cousins, all my cousins and my friends. And we did the ghost tour and we learned that our room was close to the infamous place where Michael had died. Michael, the young Irish stonemason, had fallen to his death. So three really strange things happened that weekend. Two involve our friend Erin. So Erin is notoriously not spookable. She's like, no emotion, never gets scared. Um, And nothing really ruffles her feathers. So we were having dinner and drinks in the bar on the fourth floor, which has really good pizza, by the way. But we were up there, and in the bar, if you need to go to the bathroom, the bathroom is just down the hall. You just, like, step out of the bar room, walk down the hall, not very far. There's a bathroom. So Erin needs to go to the bathroom, which is right right down the hall. And she doesn't return for a long time. And we figure maybe she went outside for a smoke break. But we started calling her, texting her, and she would not answer calls or texts after about 30 to 45 minutes, she finally calls us and she's frantic and yelling and screaming. And she's standing in front of our room, which is a couple floors down. And she says that when she left the bathroom, the hotel looked completely different. The bar was no longer there. The bathroom wasn't there and she couldn't find us. And everyone she saw in the hallways were part of a ghost tour because they were all dressed in old fashioned clothing. Well, the ghost tour people are not all dressed in, in old-fashioned clothing. Only the tour guides are, not the participants. But we didn't mention that because it was pretty scary. She was freaking out. She couldn't find us, and she wandered around until she found the staircase and made it back to the room. And thank God she didn't fall down the scare- staircase. And she was so hysterical that she refused to leave the room for fear of getting lost again. So we had to go down there and get her and escort her back up to the bar which she insisted was not even there 30 minutes later or 30 minutes before that. So then later, after we'd all gone back to the room and we're all going to bed, she went on the balcony to have a smoke before she went to sleep. A few minutes later, she returned to the room in a panic again, saying that as soon as she stepped out on the balcony, it had suddenly become daytime. There were people playing on the lawn and she she just she's not a sports person, but what she described, they were playing sounded like golf or croquet, and they were playing you know playing that game. They were playing tennis, riding horses, and wearing what she clearly described as the Victorian era clothing. So Erin did not leave the group again for the rest of the trip because it seemed like every time she got separated from us, she ended up in some kind of weird time warp. It was so weird. Um, I mean, if I was her, I would I would never go back there. That was creepy. Now, the third thing that happened was a little more subtle. While we're on the ghost tour, we all felt a lot of sadness for Michael, who'd fallen to his death. And the tour guide noted that Michael seemed to be drawn to females. So we joked that Michael might want to try hanging out with a a group of cougars. And we're like, come on, Michael, hang out with us. So then after that tour, everywhere we went, I had this weird feeling that we're leaving someone behind. There were five of us, yet I kept having to do a head count in my mind because it always felt like somebody was missing. So even like when we went downtown and we went to some of the clubs and we went out to eat, every time we loaded into an Uber to go to the next place, I had to do a head count because it felt like we had an extra person. Like one time, the last place we left, I even stood outside for a minute because I'm like, we're missing somebody, but but I said it in my head. I didn't say it out loud. But on the morning of our departure, when we're loading up all of our stuff, I offhandedly said, who are we missing? And my cousin Jody says, yeah, I feel like someone's missing too. 
And then Aaron says, I felt like that all weekend. And it turned out all of us had been doing the same silent head count all weekend, looking for that sixth person that we could feel but could not see. So we decided that Michael had taken us up on our offer to hang out with the Cougars, and it was him that was following us around. (laughs) Maybe not, but it was just weird that we had all thought that. So my last personal story occurred in October of 2020. Again, the week this was around Halloween. It was the weekend before Halloween. Me and my daughter, Hallie, and our cousins, Jody and Lily, once again visited the Crescent. At this time, the hotels were, I believe, at about two-thirds occupancy because the hotels had just opened back up because of Corona. And that would mean instead of 72 rooms, there are about 48 rooms max. And for what I've been told, the goal of them was to have an empty room between each occupied room. But the ghost tours were on. And I was a little alarmed when the tour stopped in front of our room and the guide declared it as one of the rooms with a high level of activity because these groups have, um, they have like energy detectors and they stopped in front of our room and all these buzzers were going off to indicate paranormal activity. But after a long day of walking and shopping and drinking, we crashed really hard and nothing alive or dead was going to keep us awake. We're just, we're dead to the world. That is. Until I woke in the wee hours, and I was drenched in sweat. It was a freezing cold autumn night in the Ozark Mountains, but I felt like I'd been napping on the sun. I was just sweating buckets. Also, I had to pee really bad. But I looked at my watch, and I saw that it was 2.30 a.m., and I remembered, I always remember this, all those paranormal activity movies where the spooky types make their appearance around 2.30, so I got so scared, I was too scared to get up. And I figured I could talk myself out by having to pee and just fall back asleep. Yeah, that never works. Cut to an hour later. I'm still laying there wide awake. My bladder is bursting. And I feel my daughter, my daughter and I were sharing a bed. She shook my shoulder and she said, Mom, get up with me. I got to pee. It turns out she'd been laying there for an hour or two having to pee. The same thing where she was too scared to get up and finally she couldn't stand it. So she woke me up and we get up. We take turns using the bathroom. So with our bladders empty, we quickly fall back asleep, only to be wakened again around 4 or 5 in the morning to the sound of heavy furniture being dragged across the floor in the room above us. And I remember wondering how in the hell they were rearranging that room because there are only the rooms are really small and there are only like beds and maybe a chair or two. So I'm like, what are they dragging? What, what are they doing up there? So this goes on for a short bit and we finally fall back asleep. And they were awakened again by the sound of someone in the next room hacking their lungs out. Now, this was more scary than the nighttime pit roast or the furniture body slam. It was more scary than everything else because Corona, okay? We're all very annoyed and very scared that someone will come stay at the hotel when they were clearly very, very sick. And I mean, this hacking went on for a good hour. And it wasn't until we were talking to our waitress about it at breakfast in the Crystal Dining Room the next morning that we learned that the vacant room between the occupied room thing was going on and there was no one in the room next door. All that coughing and hacking, there was no one in that room. But she said one of the students of the girls' college had died of tuberculosis in that room. Also, the sound of the furniture moving around is a very common haunting disturbance at the Crescent. So apparently we had several paranormal activity encounters that night. But we were just too tired and annoyed to to realize what it was. We just thought people were being jerks and, you know, it was hot in the room. 
I hope you guys enjoyed all that story. That wraps up all the stories in the hauntings of the Crescent that we have really have time for. And I tried my best to cite and verify them, but there are dozens and dozens more out there and you can find them on Google, you know, find them on the Google machine. I really encourage you to visit Eureka and in particular, at least go see the Crescent Hotel. You can do tours or just go up and walk into it and, and, you know, see the historical, the different historical things in it. Eureka is an amazing and beautiful place to visit, even if you're not a fan of the paranormal. Like I said, they're always celebrating something. You know, the town itself has a really distinctive, otherworldly feel to it. And if you ever go there, you'll understand what I mean. And in fact, in addition to restoring the Crescent Hotel to its former glory, the Crescent's website says that the Rennicks hired two certified mediums to do a reading of the building. The mediums found that the hotel showed signs of, quote, being a portal to the other side. As in, quote, a dimension that holds the spirits of the dead and can be accessed by those who are on the same frequency as ghosts. I'm not sure what that frequency is, but it is interesting to consider that this haunted hotel might have a portal to the other side. But why is this supposed portal on the other side just confined to the hotel itself? I, for one, believe that the town of Eureka and the springs it rests on might just be an entryway to the world beyond the veil. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Thanks for listening. Your support means so much. It's everything. If you haven't already, please go follow us on Instagram at Oddity Podity Podcast. And if you want to be the most helpfulest, please go leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And if there's something weird or creepy or strange that you'd like me to investigate and report back to you on, drop me an email at odditypodity at gmail.com. That's O-D-D-I-T-Y. P-O-D-D-I-T-Y at gmail.com. See y'all next time.